Good morning, everyone. Uh, our passage today is 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. It's 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. While you're turning there, let me just say what a pleasure it is to be among you again. Uh, Katie and I very much enjoyed worshiping with you last time and we're blessed to be invited back. The only thing that was a little sad about it is that it was not the last weekend of the month, so we didn't get to enjoy (laughs) brunch again. Uh, That was a great pleasure. So, uh, but we are glad to be here and and thankful to you for uh, inviting us again. Uh, So let me read our, our passage, 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning by your Spirit. Give us soft hearts and open minds to receive the truths from your Word, that we might give you glory in all that we say, think, and do. It's in your Son's precious name that we pray. Amen. So perhaps you've heard of the, the famous Michelin Guides. It's actually put out by the same company that, uh, that makes Michelin tires, but it doesn't have to do with tires. It has to do, interestingly enough, with fine dining. The Michelin Guides are a guide to all the best restaurants in the world, and they publish them for various cities around the world. And they're uh, for the, the kind of places that you would expect, you know, New York, Hong Kong, London, Paris, all the big cities with all the best restaurants. And the Michelin Guide will assign a restaurant anywhere between one and three stars. Getting even one Michelin star is a career-making achievement for a chef. But getting three Michelin stars puts a chef into the absolute upper echelon of restaurants around the world. There's only about 100 restaurants with three Michelin stars in the world. And like I said, most of them are in places you would expect. But there's one that's in a place where you might not expect. It's in a subway station in Tokyo, Japan. It's a sushi restaurant owned by a man named Jiro Ono. And Jiro uh, has been doing sushi his entire life. He's dedicated to it. He, He dreams about it. In fact, they made a documentary about him in 2011 called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. His dedication to his his craft is such that he works with only the best ingredients. 
You know, it's basically whatever he can find that day, that's what he serves, only the best things. And he, he rarely sees his family. Uh, he's never taken a day off. And the way that it works, if you want to go to Jiro's restaurant, is uh, it takes about a half an hour and you get a tasting menu, whatever it is that he has found that day. You have 12 to 18 pieces of sushi, and it takes about a half an hour, and it costs about $300. So it's like a assembly line, you know, you're machine gunning uh, sushi for a half an hour straight. But it's the best sushi there is in the world, they say. Um, you may have heard of the uh, what it takes to become a sushi chef. It's notoriously rigorous. It takes about seven years to, be, to train to be a sushi chef. And... It takes a few years of, of learning before you're even assigned your first task in, as a sushi chef, which is making the rice, you know, which doesn't seem that difficult, but you know, a lot goes into it, apparently. And once, you, once you've mastered rice, you can move on to other things. And there's an example of this in the documentary about Jiro Ono, where he has an apprentice who is uh, assigned to make the grilled egg course which doesn't seem that hard. Again, you just scramble some eggs, you put it in a pan, and you, you, know, you, you grill it. But it takes this apprentice 200 attempts before he does it to Jiro's satisfaction. So becoming a sushi chef, a lot goes into it. But it's not too, too different from you know, how you learn to do anything. I mean, you can learn, a lot of people learn from reading, and you can find, you know, instructions on the internet nowadays uh, for learning to do just about anything. Uh, so some people learn from, from reading or, you know, from books, from diagrams. Other people learn from hearing, you know. Uh, they'll, they'll go to lectures or they like preaching, you know, Sunday school, things like that, rather than reading books. Uh, and that's the way that they work. Uh, some people learn best by getting their hands into it, you know, getting their hands dirty. And this works well for, you know, if you're learning to fix a car or, you know, uh, your toilet's backed up, you know, something like that, uh, where you can really get in there and, and use your hands. But for a lot of things, and this goes for the sushi chef and for the, uh, for the Christian life too, a way that we learn really well is by having an example to follow. Uh, someone who, is, who, who knows how to do it, someone who is living it out, who can show us and who we can watch and have them kind of give some correction and, uh, and guide us. So this is the way it works for sushi chefs. It's the way it works a lot of the times in the, in the Christian life where we have a pattern or an example to follow. And by paying attention to that pattern, you know, you grow, you advance as a student. So along those lines, you know, God knows how much we need to learn and grow. And he has given us all sorts of uh, things to help us grow. There are um, things that we can read in the Bible, principles for living the Christian life, you know, the Ten Commandments, all sorts of things, the Sermon on the Mount. And we can hear from uh, trusted Christian teachers, from your, uh, from your pastor and elders, um, in order to hear that way. But there are also examples for us to follow. The saints whose lives are recorded in the Bible. Uh, great men and women who have come before us in Christian, uh, in church history, 
we can learn from their examples and how they lived out the Christian life. And our passage today is actually an example uh, about living the Christian life. In fact, it's, it's an example, Paul says, of the start of the Christian life. It's an example of salvation. How does salvation happen? So in this passage, Paul gives us a paradigm of salvation, a pattern or an example for how salvation happens. And he uses an ex- his, himself as an example. And so in giving this example, he tells us that salvation involves receiving undeserved mercy from God that results in a transformed life. And that this happens through the work of Christ and that it is for God's glory. So again, that's salvation involves receiving undeserved mercy from God that results in a transformed life through the work of Christ for the glory of God. Briefly, we could say that this passage tells us about the what, the the how, and the why of salvation. So first, the what of salvation. What is involved in salvation It's helpful to know some of the circumstances of this letter. Paul wrote it to his protege, Timothy, who at this time was ministering uh, to the church in Ephesus. And it seems that there were some false teachers who were causing trouble in Ephesus. And we don't really know what they were teaching, but we get some hints of it just before our passage in verses 3 to 11. And they seem to be teaching uh, some sort of alternate understanding of the law. Uh, Something like the the law does not apply to Christians. Uh, You know, once we've been saved by grace, we can live however we want, right? Uh, So they ended up encouraging immoral living. That section closes in verse 11, where Paul says, uh, he mentions the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It seems that this mention of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God is what prompts Paul to write what he does in our passage, because he goes on to talk about what exactly that gospel is and how it was that he was entrusted with that gospel. So he starts by recounting his own experience of conversion in verses 12 to 14. He He begins by thanking God who has uh, called him into his service despite his past sins. He says in verse 12 that God judged him faithful. Now we might think that he's referring to his post-conversion life, you know, after he believed in in Christ. But he's not talking about that because he's locating that basically at the same time as the appointing me to his service. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Those were at the same time. So the judging him faithful can't be referring to he has lived out his life faithfully. It's more of a, in terms of rendering a judgment, and that, that judgment was faithful or righteous. And how that happened was not based on Paul's works, because he goes on to tell you what he was like. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. It, the, the judgment of faithful or righteous was based not on Paul's works, but on the work of Christ, as we will see. It was, it was that judgment 
that came out of the mercy of God. He, he, uh, Paul says that he received mercy. That judgment was an act uh, of mercy. So, as Paul, uh, as we've said, he, he's talking about um, prior to his conversion, he was, he was not living a, a faithful life. He was not living a life that was pleasing in the sight of God because he was a blasphemer, uh, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Now, many Christians, perhaps some of you, have these really dramatic conversion stories, right? I used to go to a church that had a lot of reformed alcoholics and drug addicts who attended. And they would have these amazing stories about, you know, where they, where they had been and, the, you know, the circumstances that God rescued them out of and changed things, you know, completely, 180 degrees, at the time, I was a pretty young Christian, and I was just kind of a regular guy. You know, I hadn't uh, engaged in, in too much illegal activity uh, before my conversion and uh, wasn't living in a sewer or anything like that. And so I was sort of jealous of these, these stories, you know, of something just really dramatic and really amazing uh, to, you know, the kind of story to really grip people when you tell it to them. My story was much less dramatic. At some point, I had to come to grips with the fact that for every Christian, there is at least some drama. And it's for this reason. You know, the thing that I was jealous of was the contrast between who they were and, and who they are now after Christ. But for every Christian, there's a contrast because before Christ, you want nothing to do with God. You are serving yourselves. As our, as our passage, by the way, our, our scripture reading today could not have been more apt from Ephesians 2, uh, but we were dead in our sins and trespasses, right? And, and God made us alive together with Christ, I mean, that is a dramatic thing, and that happens for everyone. No matter what your life looked like before Christ, there is always a dramatic change. It's heart surgery, right? You have, apart from Christ, a heart of stone, but afterward you have a heart of flesh, one that is soft and sensitive to the things of God. That is how we are able to respond to him. So there is a transition that involves at the, uh, that is involved with the the moment that we receive mercy from God, where He brings us to Himself. Paul exemplified this transition. His story, of course, is well known. He was a persecutor of the church. He was there at the stoning of Stephen in Acts seven. He was uh, Acts seven. He sought out Christians and jailed them. He was even on his way to find Christians and throw them into prison when he was converted in the, on the Damascus Road in uh, Acts 9. He calls himself a blasphemer because he refused to recognize Christ as the Son of God and opposed his work in the church. 
He was a persecutor because he opposed the work of the church. And he calls himself an insolent opponent, which is something like a madman, someone who is out of control. So something changed in Paul's life. And he tells us in verse 13 that he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So he highlights the mercy of God in this transition. He is not trying to claim any uh, credit for him himself. He is, he's placing all of the, the glory, all of the credit on God. It was solely the mercy of God that, that allowed this transition to happen. Now, he says that he had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and you might think, is he, you know, is he trying to excuse himself? Is, was it not as bad uh, as it could be because he was acting ignorantly? Well, he's not really trying to do that. He is, he's applying a category from the Jewish law. There were sins that you would do unintentionally or unknowingly. If you don't know they're a sin, then... You know, there's a provision to deal with that, but it was still a sin. You have still transgressed the law of God, and a sacrifice needs to be made. And Paul recognized that. A sacrifice still had to be made for his sins. So, before he was saved, Paul thought that he was a good and faithful follower of God. And this was where his, his, uh, his ignorance comes in. He was slavishly devoted to the, the Jewish way. He was a Pharisee, you know, uncompromisingly dedicated to the Pharisaical way of life, and therefore utterly opposed to Christ and his church. And he thought he was doing a good thing. A lot of us can be like that. We think that we've got, you know, that, like, this is the, the, the way to live, this is the good thing to do. This is the thing that will please God. And if I do that, you know, we might not think this, you know, in so many words. But the idea is that if I do this, if I live this way, then God owes me in some sense. I can bring this thing before him and say, here, because of this, you must accept me. Well, there is no such thing that we can bring before God and demand his acceptance. So if Paul was to be saved, and if we are to be saved, it must be an act of pure mercy on God's fault. We cannot earn salvation through our works. Paul recognized this truth after his conversion. And he locates that conversion at this point where he received mercy from God. At that point, he says in verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So this grace is just overflowing. It is pouring out. There is more than enough. And it flows into the heart of Paul, which has now become sensitive to the things of God. And with it, there comes faith and love. These things that were not there before, where there was only hardness, where there was a, uh, an opposition to the things of God. There is now love. There is now faith in his son. There is trust in the work of Christ to satisfy 
the righteous standard of God. Paul tells us in the passage we read earlier that even our faith is a gift that we might not boast. And that's what he's saying here. This faith and love, they come not from Paul himself, but from God. God placed faith and love into the heart of Paul. And he does that for us as well when we are converted to Christ. So that's the moment of transition. And on the other side, uh, faith and love begin to characterize the life of the Christian. They began to characterize the life of Paul. That means that the life of the Christian must involve some sort of change. It's inconceivable to live as we did before knowing Christ. The, the false teachers in Ephesus were, seemed to be saying that we can still sin because we've been saved by grace. We don't have to obey the law. We can live as we like because we're already forgiven. This is a pernicious error that seems to crop up all the time in church history. But Paul would have none of it. He would say, we cannot live as we once did, having been saved. Now, this, means, this doesn't mean that we have completely conquered sin. Uh, Paul himself attests to this in places like Romans 7, that sin remains. But part of the, the Christian life is continually striving to mortify this sin to glorify God, to put to death sin and to live to righteousness, to try to live a life of service to God, as Paul says in verse 12. Serving God, loving God, striving to put sin to death. This is what the Christian life looks like. So that's The what then of salvation is undeserved mercy that results in a transformed life. So this leads into the how of salvation. How is it that we are saved? You know, if you were to, uh, oh, and uh, Paul covers this in verses uh, 15 and 16. So if, if you were to survey people, try to say, why is it that Christ came to earth? Okay, you know. Second person of the Trinity, why did he leave heaven, take on human flesh, live this life, and die? Why did he do that? You might get a a variety of answers. And I've done this in the past. I've used to work with high school kids, and I ask them, what do you think? And what do the people around you think about why Christ came to earth? And they gave answers that you've probably heard before and you could probably expect. Some of them would say, that he came to live as an example, uh, to show us a better way to live, a life marked by love and sacrifice. Others said that he came to shine a light on the circumstances of the less fortunate, to right the wrongs in society, if you will, to overturn the social order. And some say that he came to be a liberator, to free those who are oppressed, minorities and slaves, women, downtrodden people, to free them from their oppression. Now, there may be some truth to some of these, but they they sort of obscure the 
clear teaching of Scripture in passages like this. I'm not saying that those are necessarily all true. I'm just saying this is really what Scripture teaches. Um, the, clear, the clear teaching of Scripture about the coming of Christ is in passages like this. Verse 15, why did Christ come? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says that this statement is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. And it, it has immediate applicability, right? If you're reading this, then you are a sinner. And so this applies to you. And it's talking about salvation. What does that mean? You're a sinner. Apparently you need to be saved. How does that work? Well, apparently we need to be saved. And Jesus came to, just, to do just that. Now, salvation is a big topic. And Paul doesn't get into all that's involved with it in this passage. He kind of fleshes it out in various other places in his letters. Uh, in Romans 3, he tells us that we gain righteousness apart from the law through Christ and not through our works. In Romans 5, he tells us that we are saved by confessing our faith in Christ. In Galatians 4, he tells us that we are adopted into God's family through Christ. So whatever else we can say about salvation, it is clear that it is bound up with the work of Christ. It involves Christ's work. Uh, and that was what Christ came to do. That was what he wanted to accomplish. That was the purpose of his work, was to save sinners, deliver us from sin, reconcile us with the Father. This is good news for us because we are sinners. So in one breath, Paul gives us the problem and he gives us the solution. We are sinners and yet there is a provision for us to be saved from our sin. Paul includes himself in this category of sinner. In fact, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. This seems like a strange thought to us, right? You know, we think of Paul post-conversion, the guy who traveled around the known world to preach the gospel, who wrote much of the New Testament, who endured persecution, torture, opposition everywhere he went in order to proclaim the gospel of God. Certainly, he, is, he shows an, an uncommon dedication. So we might think, how can he be the worst of sinners or the foremost of sinners? There are so many, wor so many worse people, things, people who have done so many worse things, people who are not nearly so dedicated to, to God. How can he be the worst? Well, he's probably not comparing himself to other people at this point. It's probably that he has in mind a comparison to God himself. Now, you can see this as you read through Paul's letters. There's a progression through the course of his life as a Christian in how he views himself, how he describes himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, he calls himself the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, he's even worse than that. He says he's the least of the saints. 
And then here, he's worse still. He is the foremost of sinners. Over the course of Paul's Christian life, he seems to have had a greater and greater awareness of his sin, just how far short of God's glory he fell. And this is true for a lot of us, right? As you, you know, when you start out in your Christian life, you might think, I'm not too bad. But as you go along, you, you, you notice that these, these sins seem to not go away. You know, you still struggle with being kind to people, not cutting people off in traffic. You know, large things and small things. Sin seems to rear its ugly head and just won't go away. So we get worse and worse in our own eyes over the course of the Christian life. And related to that is a growing awareness of the holiness of God. So we end up with this big gap where we are sinking farther and farther down, lower and lower, while God continues to rise up in holiness in our eyes. And there, there, there is this large and growing gap between us in our sin and God in his holiness. So Paul might have been looking at that gap and just realizing how great of a sinner he was. And we can do that too, right? We can become aware of how far short of God's glory we fall. The good news is that that gap, it it doesn't actually grow. It only grows in our our, uh, perception. But the gap, I mean, is infinite. That might sound like bad news, but the good news is that it has always been bridged by the cross of Christ. It, it's, it's never that the cross of Christ falls short of bridging that gap. It is always sufficient to account for uh, the, the gap between our sin and God's holiness. He is, his work was perfect, perfectly sufficient to cover the sin of all those who place their faith in him. So no matter how deep your sin, you can be saved. So how then are we saved? Paul tells us in verse 16, he speaks of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's our part. That's how, that's how salvation becomes ours, through faith in Christ, through believing in him for eternal life. We don't add to what he has accomplished through our works, through obedience, through anything like that, it becomes ours by virtue of our faith in what he has accomplished. And no matter what we do, no matter how low we seem to sink in our own eyes, we will never be lost if we are truly in Christ. So what this means is, If Paul is the foremost of sinners and God saved him, that anyone can be saved. There is no one beyond the reach of our Lord. That person in your life who you think there's no way that God can save that person, God can save him. You might be that person who somebody else thought there's no way God can save that person. But he saved you. God can save anyone. He is that powerful. And he gives us the example of Paul for us to know that, that no one is beyond his reach. So have faith in that. So that is the how of salvation. 
that salvation is received through faith in the work of Christ. It's fully accomplished by Christ's work. And this leads to the why of salvation. Why does God save? Why did he send his son to die for our sake? Paul addresses this in verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, he says he received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So he is the example. And he says that, and we need to note this, that his example is a, is a way of showing Christ's perfect patience. This theme, the, the theme of God's patience with sinners runs throughout the Bible. He is uh, continually uh, displaying patience toward his people so that they might repent and come to him. He delights to have people come to him. Um, Christ's patience toward Paul then is an example so that we can see uh, Christ's patience in our lives too. Some of you perhaps have known the Lord your entire lives and praise God for that. Some of you might have come to know him, uh, know him later in life, uh, like me. Uh, you might have been like me and wanted nothing to do with God for a while. God was patient with you. He bore with you. He, he was at work in your life until at the right time he brought you to himself. Lovingly, it per, in his perfect timing, by his spirit. For those of you who have never known a time where you did not know the Lord, God is patient with you too because you still continue to sin. And, and I do too. Um, but God is, God is patient with us. He does not cast us off. He does not destroy us. But by his spirit, he works in us to conform us into the image of his son. And why does he do this? Why be patient? Paul tells us in verse 17, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, in reflecting on God's mercy and patience in salvation, does what? He erupts in praise. This is why God acts that his acts might be seen, that he might be shown to be the powerful and loving God that he is, and that he might be praised, that he would receive glory. This is why he does everything that he does, that he would be glorified, that we, his creatures, could see how glorious he is and give him praise for it. So, There's a a passage in the Old Testament in Leviticus 14 that has to do with um, what to do. There was instructions to the Israelites when they came into the promised land, instructions for dealing with mildew if they happen to find it in their house. And this is oddly one of my favorite passages uh, in the Bible. Uh, It outlines a procedure for dealing with mildew 
Uh, that ends, if, if you can't eradicate the mildew, it ends with the destruction of the house. And you might think, well, that doesn't seem very nice, or, you know, why is this in the Bible? Well, it's there to teach a lesson. Uh, the mildew was a metaphor for sin. It was a pernicious thing. And God is holy. He cannot abide sin in his presence. It must be dealt with. And the Israelites would learn this lesson that sin must be dealt with, that uncleanness cannot exist in the presence of God. And because he is holy. And so it would teach them about the holiness and purity of God and their continued sinfulness, but also about the provisions he had made so that they could continue to dwell in his midst. So they were to look at their, their crumbled house and praise God that he, was, that he was holy, that he is holy. And when we look at our sin, on the one hand, we, can, we ought to grieve over it. But on the other hand, we can praise God because he is holy. There is no sin in him. And yet he has dealt with our sin fully and finally, and we can praise him for it. So this is why God saved Paul. It's why he saved you and me. It's why he continues to save people so that he might be seen in all his glory and purity and power and that we might praise him for it. So my hope for you and for me is that we can grasp how incredible this privilege is that we can receive mercy undeservedly and be empowered by the Spirit of God to live transformed lives. That we would trust in the work of Christ as having fully and finally accomplished our salvation so that we need add nothing else to it. There's nothing else we can add. He has done it all. And that we might glorify God with our mouths and with our lives in all that we do and say, God aims to glorify himself in all things, and that should be our aim as well. Living this way can be costly. It might cost you your house, as it might have the ancient Israelites. It might cost you your job. It might cost you your family. But it is worth it, because through it we get to see God's glory and praise him for it. And may we never tire of giving God glory for the salvation that we enjoy through Christ and for his holiness. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word and for your works. Through the salvation that you have accomplished through your son, which we receive and rest upon in faith. We pray that your spirit would continue to work in us. Help us to mortify our sin, to give glory to you in all that we do, and to seek you in all things. It's in your Son's name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Kevin.